I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Our guest today is a Time Magazine hero of the environment who, at age 16, raised money for the Rainforest Action Network, and at 17, lived in Nicaragua to show solidarity with the Sandinista's socialist revolution. But our guest, author Michael Schellenberger, isn't your typical Bill McKibben or Bernie Sanders type. He's a campaigner for the environmental benefits of nuclear energy through his group Environmental Progress, and just released a new book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, Criticizing How Radical Left Approaches to Criminal Justice and Homelessness Have Battered the Bay Area. Ken Braun, who joins today's conversation, reviewed both books, uh, both San Francisco and Schellenberger's previous book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, for Capital Research Center. Schellenberger joins us to discuss his theses. Uh, before we begin, Michael, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up as the sort of critic from within of environmentalism and life in the Bay Area. Sure. So I worked in the mid to late 1990s on a bunch of progressive causes. I was a campaigner on everything from saving redwoods, saving red rainforests to climate change, but also uh, drug policy advocated for decriminalization, worked with Maxine Waters to organize civil rights leaders for needle exchange, which is a way to prevent HIV AIDS from spreading among drug users. And when I stopped doing that work in the early 2000s, my my understanding was that we were going to that we were trying to advocate for a more medical model rather than criminal justice in terms of the treatment of addicts. 17,000 people were dying every year from drug overdoses. Just to give you a sense of how much things have changed, last year, over 100,000 people died from drug overdoses and drug poisonings. So around 2017, as I saw these numbers change, I decided I needed to take a closer look at the problem. This was 2017. This is sort of the beginning, or at least, I mean, it had started sort of 2015, 2016, but by 2016-17, the opioid epidemic as we know it today had sort of come to public knowledge. That's right. And if you look at the increase of deaths, it was actually pretty constant. There's been a sharper increase in recent years from fentanyl, but it was already at 70,000 by 2017. And I had spent, you know, the prior 15 years, 20 years working mostly on climate change, where I, as you had mentioned, had come to view nuclear power as the solution and couldn't, couldn't entirely understand why environmentalists, if they care about climate change, were so against nuclear power. And so last year, my book, Apocalypse Never, came out where I sort of trace the history of environmentalism back to a pretty anti-human attitude. And that that being a big driver for the opposition to what are obvious technical solutions to climate change, namely natural gas and nuclear power. Mm -hmm. And so in San Francisco, I sort of do the same thing, but on drugs crime and homelessness, particularly in the Bay Area, and try to understand why is it that people that say they care so much about people of color, about about people that are sick, about the poor, end up treating them so terribly and at such high cost. So we so have what is, so what is over... sort of the elevate what is the elevator pitch for why progressives ruin cities, the subtitle of of San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, the short version is that progressives enable addiction and to a large extent defend addiction as something that you can't do anything about, that all you can do is give addicts, you know, safe drugs and and safe ways of injecting or smoking them and that nothing should be required of them because they're essentially victims of our terrible capitalist system. 
and that they can only be helped. So it's really a victim ideology is leading to mass death, mass homelessness, and much, much worsening crime over the last several years. Ken, does that make does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, you argue cities can't be cities if civil society, rule of law, and so forth, you know, break down. Um, but ironically, you a, a not, I want to say villain, but a but a central problem creator in in your in your narrative is the American Civil Liberties Union that's that's harming civil society. Um, what what's up with that? Yeah, I mean, the particular story of the American Civil Liberties Union is very interesting. I mean, this is an organization that I think a lot of Americans, not just liberal Americans, by the way, really have admired Definitely. for taking yeah. tough positions. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. when I grew up, my, my dad, I remember, you know, my dad being like, yeah, those guys defend the Nazis marching through Skokie, Illinois. You know, I mean, this is uh, um, out of pure concern for freedom, you know, freedom of expression. Um, now we like see the classical, ACLU they would take the hard the case, even if they didn't, even if they didn't yeah. agree be, to protect the That's rest right. of us. That's right. Now we see ACLU actually favoring censorship. In many cases, we see ACLU as one of the primary, though certainly not the sole protagonist of an advocate for the policies that are resulting in severe human misery on our streets. And on that issue, unfortunately, ACLU was was a pretty bad actor its entire history. It's I not a I recent suppose what change. Are, what, you mentioned the policies that are causing the misery. What are those policies specifically? Yeah, I mean, I, the biggest one is not enforcing the law <laughs> against public drug use, public camping, public defecation, and particularly not enforcing the law against group, you know, select groups of people, you know, people that are mentally ill, people that are addicted to drugs, people that are homeless, and explicitly advocating for different treatment of those folks, even though those are the folks that are causing all of the disruption. They're also opposing the expanded use of what we call cons conservatorship in California, but it's called guardianship in other countries. They oppose, sorry, other states, but other countries too, actually. Um, but they also oppose assisted outpatient treatment, which is basically court ordered uh, treatment, medical treatment for people suffering serious mental illness who are a threat to themselves or others, basically created after, you know, schizophrenics would push people onto train tracks or other other ways of hurting people. ACLU opposes those things. Um, and and then I think finally, it has also um, just been a huge force in reducing any consequence for a variety of other criminal activities, not just ones by homeless addicts, but also by, you know, just by routine crimes, including attempted homicide. ACLU has been an advocate for basically letting many more people out on bail rather than holding them. And we saw we've seen some of the results of it in Waukesha. Wisconsin, a man was out, was released on $1,000 bail, and he ran, ran over 40 people, killed six of them. We see the same thing in other progressive cities. Progressive prosecutors who are basically and have been public defenders and basically ACLU types have just just stopped enforcing laws. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's that simple. Can the notorious... 
Yeah, the notorious Chesa Budin is another figure in your in your narrative. Um, and and for for all of what you just just summarized, um, I guess my question would be: When did we go from kind of a noble idea of maybe we should in in, in you know prosecute or even make illegal these so-called victimless crimes? We seem to have gone over. When when did we go over to the idea of what you say or, or what Budin said? He wasn't going to go after quality of life, prosecute quality of life, quote unquote, crimes anymore. Which sounds like an evolution to where we're going to uh, allow predatory criminals to victimize certain groups, and that's going to be okay. When when did that changeover happen? Yeah. Well, and it's sort of, it's almost more like it's the difference between being liberal and radical left. I mean, I just mm. watched the this movie, um, there's an HBO documentary about the Black Panthers. Not a documentary, sorry. It's a sort of a made-for-HBO mm. movie mm. about the Black Panthers. Um, it was called Judas and the Black Messiah. And Heard of there's it. a moment in it where... They, you know, the it's not just the Black Panthers. They make this alliance with Latino and white radical activists who are also anti-police activists, and they sit, they go through all these complaints about the police department, including you know the police being racist and mistreating people. And you're sort of I'm watching. I'm like nodding along. Yep, those are all concerns. And then they go, the, there should not be police in our neighborhoods. <laughs> And you kind of go, well, wait a second. That's that. I was like, that's the. I was like, right there. That's the moment. That's the where the line you, got you've, crossed. You've you've you've, you know? di- you've you've diagnosed a potential problem, and your cure is not not good. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And we see this a lot with the. I mean, this is similar to my critique on the environment: is that climate change is real, environmental destruction is real. We should do things about them, hmm. and the things that they want to do are terrible. And in both cases, they're terrible because the solu- because they've defined the problems as resulting from the system. You know, ba- your basic industrial capitalist let's, let's system. Dis- let's discuss that in terms of homelessness, which my, my understanding from reading Ken's review of your book is that you object to that term to describe the people who are living on the street in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., a lot of major cities. That's right. I mean, this is, I mean, what the people we call homeless, the people that you see, the unsheltered homeless, the people who were not taken care of either in shelters or housing, overwhelmingly addicts suffering from very serious drug addiction. In the 1980s, the so-called homeless epidemic really starts with the crack epidemic, often crack and alcohol. Then we have heroin in the 90s. The costs come down many more junkies on the street. And the typical picture is you get addicted to hard drugs. You stop working because you're just doing drugs all day. You lose your relationship with friends and family. You lose your housing. And so being homeless is a side effect of your addiction. It's one of the many consequences of your addiction, including joblessness and familyness, a disaffiliation from your family. And the left basically has just, hoodwinked everybody for lack of a better way of saying it by suggesting that that the problem is fundamentally about rents well the problem was fundamentally about addiction 
and has been for 30 years. And it's something that's been that sort it, of acknowledged. Even if, even if you got, level. even if you did manage to get the rents down in San Francisco or in Washington, D.C., or in any of these major cities, these people would still, they wouldn't be able to hold down yeah. jobs. They wouldn't be able to, they don't have the no. family networks that people need when they do fall on hard times, they'd still be in trouble. Right. But not only that, but I mean, the Europeans, they have, there's a body of scholarly work where they call what we call homeless encampments, they call open drug scenes. And open drug scenes are open drug markets that addicts live in. That's what they live in the tents or they live right. And one of my characters in my book, he points to this little doorwell right in an open drug market in San Francisco. And he goes, I used to sleep here rather than five blocks away in the shelter because I wanted to be that much closer to the dealers. I mean, that's the level at which people are addicted. It's like they can't stay in housing. That's human tragedy. Mm. Yeah, it's severe illness. And I mean, it's interesting because you kind of go, I don't know of any other illness in our society that we basically deny, misrepresent, and then treat with some other treatment. Um, so, I mean, I really believe it is a kind of uh, pathological altruism is the word, is what I conclude it is. It's, you know, at one point I consider whether it's Munchausen syndrome by proxy, because there's certainly a kind of desire to take care of sick people that is at the bottom of a lot of it. But I don't, you know, it's more just uh, ideological blinders making progressives and, and and not just in progressive cities, but really even the Republican, the Republicans embraced a bunch of these policies too, also in other conservative cities. But it's this idea that you should just enable addiction rather than intervene to address it. Ken? Yeah, the, uh, I mean, just as a personal aside, I spent six months confronting a schizophrenic crisis in my own family prior to your book coming out. So a lot of what you said about conservatorships and, and the like really, really hit home um, just because it is these folks. My son is the one I'm speaking of mm. that, you know, the, the nature of the disease is that they don't want to, they, they don't think they're right. sick. They don't, they're going to resist treatment. And the idea that right. it's somehow civil to, to empower for them to ruin themselves because they they don't have the the capacity to help themselves is is, is just it's a madness of its own. Um, what so right. that 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 said um, that, that that's a great piece of your book. I'd recommend that just for the, for that part alone. Um, flush out. You, you've got some good so, a, a good solution for how to address all of these things, um, but in particular the mental illness. What what just give us a a, a quick rundown of what that is. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I'm sorry to hear about that. That's a hard situation. And my aunt suffered schizophrenia, and I actually thought I would address it more in the book. And the reason, in part, I didn't is that my family didn't want to talk about it. It's really painful. It's hard to, Mm -hmm. you know, people with schizophrenia are difficult people. It's really challenging. Everybody remembers the terrible mental hospitals that we had that were exposed after World War II by Life magazine. It's the famous photos of people, you know, the mistreatment of mental patients. But what people don't know is that the treatment of people with schizophrenia in particular, but really all serious mental illness, has been horrible throughout human history. I mean, it's just one of the, it was one of the darkest, saddest things to research, which is 
you know, the mental hospitals that we created in the late 19th century by Dorothy Dix and other progressive reformers were these incredible institutions. They were pulling people out of dungeon basements and barns, people chained up or killed, you know, people were being killed, you know, for, for schizophrenia. So, so it's a very difficult challenge to deal with. And there's a passage, I think a really important passage in San Francisco where I tell the story of, a, of my Dutch character basically forcibly putting a friend of the family in a mental hospital twice and kind of doing it off the books, you know, grabbing him by the lapels, muscling him in there. And, and my colleagues, my research colleagues who worked on the book with me, we were kind of like, they were like, Hey, that kind of makes our character look kind of rough and harsh. And mm -hmm. I was like, you know, we're going to keep it because the alternative is that guy being locked up in a jail cell and mm -hmm. he ended up, he got the treatment he needed and now has his own car, his own apartment and his own job, which is for people with schizophrenia is like a miracle. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. schizophrenia, in particular, serious mental illness, they just, I think, require greater public understanding of what's required, which we don't have. I mean, if you looked at the treatment of the so Britney we're, Spears so we're in a, stuff. We're in, a, we're, in a perfect, we're in a perfect storm where nobody, you know, these people have serious problems. Nobody understands what needs to be done to get them the treatment that they need. And we're afraid to do that. Well, no, I mean, actually, there's actually fairly broad agreement about how to treat people with schizophrenia. And there's even broad mainstream agreement, or at least there had been until recently, of how to treat people with addiction, including the recognition, as we were describing, that people suffering from addiction or from schizophrenia, other mental illnesses are delusional about that. Mm -hmm. They think that mm -hmm. they have secret, con secret contact with aliens mm -hmm. and the CIA and everybody else is the ignorant ones. So, so, but we do have a good understanding. It's been the radical left, the progress, you know, people that call themselves progressives often that have argued for a completely different approach, which is including the ACLU, which is leaving people on the street often to live in their own filth. Mm -hmm. So, so, What's and then, up? oh no, go ahead, Ken. Well, uh, we picked on the ACLU a little bit here. Um, are there other, particularly in California, um, other nonprofits that you could name? I, I don't recall a lot of them. There were some of them named in the book, but but who are the other uh, the other uh, nonprofits? The pathologically altruistic uh, nonprofits, uh, to use your phrase, that are exacerbating <laughs> this problem there. Yeah, well, just and I'll say too that I mean, there's it's many institutions now, including unfortunately the public health and mental and uh, and uh, public health and medical institutions that have been corrupted by this bad woke ideology. But you know, the ones funded by George Soros, you know, um, I mean, and Michael Bloomberg to a lesser extent, but it's it's Harm Reduction Coalition and Drug Policy Alliance are the two big national ones. But there's many nonprofits that are funded to do this work, and they're the ones that are actively opposing shutting down the open drug scenes. It was just a West Coast phenomenon, but we recently saw the progressive mayor of Boston and now progressive city councils in Washington, D.C., demand that open drug scenes continue to function even during the winter months. And the reason is because the addicts who live in them 
say they want to stay there. And instead of saying, no, that's your addiction talking, the progressives are saying, okay, let's do that. Yeah. All right. Uh, so now we move on to an equally controversial subject, uh, energy and the environment and your previous book, Apocalypse Never. Um, my understanding is you argue for expanding nuclear energy to cut carbon emissions as well as other pollution. What's the, uh, the argument for that? And why don't the Sierra Clubs and Bill McKibbins of the world accept nuclear energy? Well, this is a big part of the story. I mean, it's not just that Apocalypse Never Started as a book about the environment that I ended up broadening in the middle of it. It was that nuclear kind of gives lie to everything else. If you have a world powered by nuclear energy, your environmental problems are massively reduced. Um, you don't have, I mean, nuclear requires one third of 1% of the land as wind and solar. Nuclear's material throughput, meaning the mining, the construction, and the waste byproducts are an order, like two orders of magnitude less than every other way of making energy, particularly renewables. Renew solar makes 300 times more waste than nuclear. So that's, that raises that issue, which is what's going on here. And what, what I, the, the, the punchline is that you, is that, 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 that the, answer, the, the answer is in the question. The reason they don't want nuclear is because it solves all the environmental problems. <laughs> So if so, you so, solve so, all the so environmental it works, problems, it works, it works too well. You got it. It works to solve environmental problems, and thus deprives them of the basis for you know taking control of the economy, of trying to harmonize with nature through renewables, raising money from large, powerful financial interests to support their campaigns. So there's a bunch of interests being served through environmental alarmism. And if you solve environmental problems that reduces, then that undermines the interests. Ken? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of phrases you introduce in that book that I, I just at first like to praise you for calling um, renewable energy, meaning wind and wind farms and solar um, farms. Uh, weather restricted or weather dependent power rather than than renewable, which I think really gets to the heart of how limited they are as a as an energy source that can possibly power a, an industrial civilization. Um, but related to that, I don't know if it's original to you or not. Maybe you can clarify environmental colonialism. What uh, what is that, and who does it, and what kind of damage does it do? Yeah, and and by the way, the weather dependent. My, we actually didn't quite get to weather-dependent um, renewables until after the book came out. In the book, we talk about them as unreliables, which is something I borrowed from a friend, Alex Epstein. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the criticism of environmental groups as colonial is pretty old. I mean, the original parks in the United States, but then also in Africa, the big parks, you know, the big wildlife reserves, were always colonial projects. You know, and they always were trying to kick Indians and native native peoples or just people out of them. It's very hard. Like, there's not a lot of nature in the world that doesn't have people in it. It's, I mean, and it hasn't had people in it for a really long time. In fact, we now know that the Amazon was all forest. It was, I'm sorry, it was all farmed before the arrival of the Europeans in the 16th century. So 
And then it was genocide and really disease that wiped out those communities and resulted in what we now, you know, what we later then said is primeval forest um, because all the forest had grown back. So, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the basis of it. I mean, basically, it's been pretty terrible, you know, on the one hand, obviously, you know, I I try to describe that there is this benefit to that horrible colonialism, which is that you have these extraordinary wildlife reserves in Africa. Unfortunately, they've come at a really serious price. I mean, they, they did in, in the United States, too, certainly, in, you know, Yellowstone, Yosemite. But, you know, the people that pay the price are the people that weren't able to use that parkland for farming. That would probably be OK if the same environmental groups advocated industrialization in the cities, because the when you interview poor farmers really anywhere in the world and you're like, hey, would you like to move to the city and have a job working in the factory? everybody will raise their hand because that's obviously a better life than farming subsistence farming is just the worst in terms of backbreaking poverty precarity of you know the woman i the character the main character in the book one of the three main characters is a small subsistence farmer in the congo and her and her and an, and an orangutan had just sorry a baboon had just eat, eaten her sweet potatoes and that was devastating so you know, if environmentalists were were actually cared about saving people and the natural environment in places like Africa, they would they would propose you know H and M opening factories in the capital cities of those places because that gives jobs to the people whose lives are threatened by the existence of these parks, including their wildlife, and also you know would is also just much better for a bunch of other environmental metrics, including, you know, material use, land use, pollution and the like. A, a lot of that is, is a, an insist, I mean, many of the characters, particularly the one you were, you were just mentioning the, the Congolese woman, um, they don't have electricity. And my understanding of how you portrayed environmental colonialism from that perspective is that there's an insistence that, by, by a lot of these groups that they, they don't use, they, they must use wind and solar. Uh, you can't allow them to use coal, natural gas. Um, and in one particularly awful example, even use a, a hydro, uh, the possibility of a very significant hydroelectric dam is being opposed by one of your neighbors there in San Francisco or Berkeley. Um, you know that literally a col a colonial imposition of a northern california leftism on a on a society in the congo that has no electricity at all right i mean this has been really the worst manifestation i mean this and making you know teenagers anxious and depressed you know, and convincing half of the human race that climate change threatens human extinction, which is just ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, it's the dep the deprivation of cheap and reliable power to poor countries. That's been one of the main things that the United Nations has been focused on doing. They cynically mislead people into thinking that climate change is a greater threat to Africans than poverty. They deny them financing for hydroelectric dams there, there's currently an effort right now underway to deprive Mozambicans investment in their natural gas resources, which which are vast and, and will make people rich in Mozambique and provide them with cheap gas. 
which they need free for economic growth. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's really quite sinister and it's hard to look at it and kind of be like, it's all super well-intentioned. It's, it definitely comes across as a way to keep poor people down a way by rich people to keep poor people down. And, and so it's not, I don't think it's strictly altruistic. I think it has to do with power. I think it has to do with wanting to feel superior. And that comes across really loud and clear when you look at the behaviors of these guys and the ways in which they fly in private jets around the world constantly in, for, in full view of everybody while demanding that poor Africans can't use natural gas. So whenever somebody makes an effective argument on a controversial subject, you tend to get a lot of reaction. Um, and both of your books have, have gotten some of that reaction. So if you could, what, what has been the reaction both to San Francisco and to Apocalypse Never? Uh, what are some of, the, some of the highlights and the lowlights? Well, it's been nonstop. I mean, I was, shortly after Apocalypse Never came out, um, my art, my editors at Forbes removed my column announcing the book from Forbes. I was then censored by Facebook on completely bogus grounds in my first testimony before Congress. Well, the second that year, but my first testimony to Congress after the book came out, two members of three members, at least of a committee, uh, waited until the end of the hearing to attack me personally, to attack my integrity. <laughs> and then the chairperson gaveled the committee to a close. So I was not allowed to respond for yeah. San Francisco. Yeah, it was pretty inappropriate. Um, the, for San Francisco, I did end up testifying several more times. And in part, I think because some people in Congress were kind of appalled by my treatment, but I continue to have an algorithm against me. It's Facebook. It's really obvious. Um, it's not a conspiracy theory. Like I know it exists. Um, and San Francisco has been different as I suspected it would like on the one hand, it's not quite as sensationally controversial, although it's becoming more so. The Times published a review last week where they basically just lied about the book. They claimed that I didn't interview more than one homeless person or that the book didn't contain any testimonies from homeless people, which is just a bizarre. I mean, I interviewed hundreds of homeless people and the book is full of homeless voices. Um, but, you know, there's other things that are more interesting. I mean. Oh, and I'll say, you know, I mean, like the local, I've been now written up in the biggest, like some of the biggest newspapers in Spain, Denmark. Um, I, I've been invited on all sorts of, uh, I did NBC in LA, but nothing, basically nothing by ba San Francisco media. I kind of shoehorned my way into <laughs> a podcast at the San Francisco Chronicle got on the second tier NPR affiliate, but basically just completely ignored by the major San Francisco media. But it is starting to get out. I have interestingly heard from a few of the, I mean, the book itself, for people that read it, they'll know, or, or and just to sort of advertise it. I mean, it is a book that is really comprised of quotes and claims and assertions and data that come from progressives 
it is it is a book full of progressives saying that progressivism has failed. It's not me just ranting or something, or it's not, and I'm not a conservative anyway, but it's not like the book is not maybe what it seems since it came out. I've had several people reach out, including a very high level official in the homeless sector whose name I, who called and said that this person basically completely agreed with San Francisco and that, in fact, the person wondered if I had access to their PowerPoints and said that mm-hmm. bas- and basically confirmed everything. And then in the middle of the interview said, can we just keep this anonymous? And so I just published it with this person's identity withheld. But, you know, it's it's been a wild ride. I mean, I wouldn't have written San Francisco had it not been for COVID. But I'm glad mm-hmm. I did because the two books for me constitute both a kind of warning of the threats to civilization from within and also a, an agenda that I do believe, even though the left has gone bonkers for now, I do believe that will actually be eventually accepted by left and right. I think it's going to take a while, but I do think will will constitute some pragmatic, practical right, a, solutions. A, a foundation, on a foundation upon which some some common ground can be found. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, to uh, I think you just as an aside, I think you got a pretty good review um, from the Economist for San Francisco or, or some um, prominent European yes. publication. I, I may have been the yes. name wrong. Um, and no less than Oliver Stone, hardly a member of the House Freedom Caucus, uh, praised Apocalypse Never and pretty much roundly endorsed the entire message. So uh, are there other examples of, of a prominent, a surprising uh, figure who, who kind of jumped to your side in these, these items? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. The Stone, Oliver Stone came out of the blue. You know, he's radical left. Um, there mm-hmm. was some praise, there's been some praise on Twitter. You mentioned The Economist. I mean, yeah, that, for sure, that's the biggest of the of the best reviews came from the economist. Um, then there's been some more support from the radical left on Twitter. There's a, there's a particular radical left tradition. And I don't even know if they would say radical left, but I think it is, it kind of comes, there's a particular variant of, you might call it kind of um, cultural conservative Marxism. And the most important thinker in that in that area is Christopher Lash, who died mm. uh, like 20 years ago or something. But he basically was uh, similar to people like Daniel Bell. He believed that things like the family and values, <laughs> I don't values, like the family and culture mattered and that you needed to have a proper social safety net, you know? And so that's similar to where I'm at, which is that I think you have to have universal psychiatry, for example, there's mm-hmm. not a free market of schizophrenics out there offering to compete, you know, searching for the right healthcare plan for their psych, for their <laughs> schizophrenia, right. Or for their addiction. It's something that the government is involved in inevitably. But similarly, there has to be a kind of cultural commitment to taking responsibility. And, and so responsibility, both at the individual level, like you have to have some 
reciprocity. If you're helping drug addicts or mentally ill people, anybody, then there should be something required in return. That that's that the idea that you would just give things to see people declare victims and not ask anything in return is just absurd. So I have ha- found some support from those folks. I'm very I'm very close with Mike Lind, who you may know is a former conservative turned liberal, and he's been more of a kind of populist. He's a na- economic nationalist, and yeah, I think that, that has familiar. been and then. Yeah, his, you know, I would say like this tradition that, I mean, I sort of identify with this movement that nobody else calls himself anymore, which is the intellectual dark web, which is Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, Joe Rogan, Barry Weiss. Um, I consider Michael Lynn part of it, but also John McWhorter. It's pretty darn Jonathan Haidt, pretty diverse group of people, some who who might be called never trumpers others who might be called more libertarian others who people of, might have people been more of a centrist sort of, people of a sort of you know economically leftish socially very concerned about where the hard left is going yes sort yeah. of sort of people of various diverse backgrounds and yes yeah. and who think class matters like I would say it's like people who think class matters, whether or not you're Marxist. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to be like Joe Rogan's a Marxist, but Mar- but Joe Rogan endorsed Bernie Sanders, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. but he's against gun control, you know? And so it's more like Which populist. Bernie Sanders used to be long, long ago. <laughs> and also anti, and also not anti-immigration too, right? Because there's a class concern around downward pressure on wages. So that's exactly where I'm at, you know, which is I'm probably more traditionally progressive on things like gun control. I don't understand. I think a well-regulated militia means that you don't let people have AR-15s running around town. But there's other things that we all have differences on. But I think there's a kind of common view that the cultural left, the radical cultural left is toxic and destructive and that you do need to have some values and morals and some social cohesion along with a kind of role for government and things like delivering health care. Well, I think I think that is a good place to end. Once again, I'd like to thank Michael Schellenberger for joining Ken and I. Uh, we will put a link to both of Michael's books, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities and Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.